Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm really liking the fall weather here. I'm finding lots of fun things to do. Um, school's going well, and I'm still kind of on a wave of processing general conference. There was a lot that we really didn't get time to uh, properly acknowledge last week. I, I think we were both speaking to the things that most immediately stuck out to us uh, with regard to the messaging and, well, the messages of general conference. And uh, we took a moment to speak to those. Also, I'll say this about New England weather. Of course, the day, of course, the year we're socially distancing, we're actually getting somewhat of a fall. Anyway, with that, what do you say we go ahead and discuss this week's Come Follow Me? Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this with you. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole Book of Mormon. We get into 4th Nephi. Absolutely. Before we do that, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So I guess we'll just go in order here. We'll start with, we are in 3rd Nephi chapters 27 through 4th Nephi chapter 1. Derek, what kind of context do you want to give to these chapters before we dive into the content? Well, I think we've got a very interesting thing here. Mormon is chronicling. This is a chronicle. He's sort of sifting through the records and picking out what he thinks is important. And one thing, we'll get to this when we get into 4th Nephi, but... Part of the selection is when there's peace and harmony, stuff goes by for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's just two paragraphs. Yeah. <laughs> and when you've got wars, it's like many, many pages and chapters for just one month or one battle, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to the simplicity. Not that the good parts aren't good, but there's a simplicity to them that, that there's not much that needs to be said about if, if things are going well, you know. Mm -hmm. Or at least there's not enough of a of a relevance. Like, I'm not sure how to phrase it. But we'll, we can talk about that more when we get to 4th Nephi. Absolutely. Because I, I wanted to talk about that as well, concerning how little airtime we seem to give just this 200 years of peace that happens in the Book of Mormon. And we get one book, one chapter for the whole, for the, for the whole of it. And it's it's amazing. But anyway, um, I guess we'll start in 3rd Nephi 27. Do you want to talk? I, I was curious to hear your thoughts on uh, Jesus Christ handling of the disputations concerning the naming of the church that appears in the first couple verses here. Do you have any immediate thoughts yeah, about this? Yeah, I do. I, I love that Jesus, right off the bat, comes here with this question, What will ye that I shall give unto you? In verse 2. And I think that's cool because Jesus is showing interest and responsiveness and attentiveness and looking for feedback and looking for contributions. He just doesn't tell them something and like dump it on them. He says, okay, what do you want? Well, clearly, because they were also just like, y'all fasted, you fasted and prayed me here. What y'all mm -hmm. want? You know what I'm right. saying? Just right. that's kind of what spurred this whole appearance of Jesus Christ among the people. They are, they have been giving themselves to and united in a lot of fasting and prayer. And then this is what brings Jesus into their midst to the point where Jesus is like, what y'all want? And, and, I, 
And I love how this makes Jesus approachable and we should be bold and fearless in our faith and trust that we can go. Like if we have a problem, we have a concern, we can go to Jesus. And a lot of people don't see it that way. A lot of people think that we just have to deal with what we're dealt. Mm-hmm. But there's room for, especially those on the margins, for navigating that exact type of dialogue with the Savior. Definitely. And when we get to, I don't know if it's 28 or 29, but uh, it'll be interesting that the writer is going to actually be talking a lot about this, about people particularly denying the miracles and denying that we can approach Jesus Christ like this. So I'm really really glad that you brought this up. Yeah, and what he ends up saying is that the church is supposed to be called after my name. And I find that so beautiful because this isn't the church of Derek Knox. It's not the church of Russell M. Nelson. It's not even the church of Joseph Smith. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And that should bring bring clarity and focus to everything we do. And I just want to talk about the blessings we have in our church. Because we like to say we're the one true church. And yes, that we are. But I want to also name something very interesting. What, What makes us Christ's church? And I think it's that we are Christ's church, not because everything is perfect, but because we have all the gifts that Christ wanted to bless us with. Okay. And those gifts include the scriptures and temples and ordinances and the spirit. And of course, gifts like the living prophets and a lot of these things other churches don't have. And I'm not trying to say anything bad about other churches, But another thing we have is the name of Christ's church, which is revealed from on high. And that we know exactly what the name should be, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I want to talk about all these gifts, including the name of the church, the scriptures, the living prophets. So what makes us, like I said, Christ's church is we have all of Christ's gifts. But I also want to name that we're not the only church with some of those gifts. There's other churches with some of those gifts like the scriptures and some of those other churches exercise those gifts a little bit better than some of those gifts a little bit better than we do. And there's always something that we can learn from those because we're not the only ones with the scriptures. Other churches have the scriptures and, and have done really gloriously with them. And in fact, a lot of the things that people like about me are things that I brought with me from another church tradition. Well, I wanted to uh, name quickly just how matter-of-factly Jesus declares what the name of his church is supposed to be and why. Um, I just want to read what he says here. He says, Why is it that people should murmur and dispute because of this thing? Have they not read the scriptures? That is what Jesus said. He's like, Why are you guys wondering about this? Like, based on what it says on my scriptures, you know that you're supposed to take upon yourself the name of Christ, so why wouldn't the church be in my name as well? Something that stood out to me was just how matter-of-fact Jesus was about something that we should have understood all along. And I think about that from time to time when it comes to certain disputations that we see within the church today. I imagine Christ more or less coming among us and being like, I can't believe you guys are even fighting about this. Have you read the scriptures at all? Like, for example, he's like, why are y'all fighting about LGBTQ issues? Did you not read what I said in the scriptures about loving your neighbor as yourself? What is that? What should that tell you about how we deal with that members of that community? 
What should that tell you about how we deal with members of the immigrant community? What should that tell you about how we deal with the orphans, the widows, uh, the poor? Like, why are y'all fighting about how to deliver economic justice, how to deliver social justice, whether or not you even should, when you have my scriptures? There is a matter-of-factness to Jesus Christ's appearance here that makes me wonder, did this conversation even need to take place at all? You know what I'm saying? Now, thankfully, they did. And according to the verses here, the people were all united in prayer about what to call the church. Like, this was a matter urgent enough to them, the naming of the church, to the point where they needed to fast and pray on it and get Jesus to appear. How much more urgent are these particular issues here? And how much more matter-of-fact is Jesus with regard to issues like that? I wonder how much or how simple his instruction is going to be to us when he finally declares the equality of members of the LGBTQ community, when he reaffirms the humanity of immigrant lives, of widow lives, of sick lives, of black lives, of other lives. And these are things that we're fighting about in the church, significant things. But if we've read the scriptures, as Jesus seems to imply that people haven't really done a good job of here, then I think we would already know the answers to these questions, or we already should. So that's the first thing I wanted to point out, was just how matter-of-fact Jesus' solution was to this particular conflict, was that y'all should know this if you have my scriptures. But I will tell you, based on what you guys are fighting about, and I'm sure he was nice about it, like, how are y'all fighting about this stuff? Y'all read my scriptures, y'all are called in my name, call the church in my name. Y'all are called in my name, call LGBTQ people in my name as well. Y'all called, y'all called in my name, this is how, then y'all got to treat LGBTQ folks, y'all got to treat poor folks, y'all got to treat immigrant folks the way I treated them, with respect, give them what they need, meet them on their terms. So, um, I just wanted to lift that up real quick and sorry, I already forgot what point of yours originally My I was point supposed was about to be the different gifts in the, the different church gifts, that we yes. have. And there could be, for example, let's look, let's look at this. A lot of people, I think this is a cultural thing. This isn't in our sources, but it's a cultural thing. A lot of people say, well, we've got a living prophet and therefore that's all we need, right? Ooh, we don't yeah. need the scriptures. We don't, they don't say that, but they act like it. They act right. like the living prophet is the most important thing ever and that a living prophet is more important than a dead prophet and right. all these other things. I'm like, what you're saying is you're content with only a fraction of, of all the abundance of God's gifts that God has given specifically to this church. Mm-hmm. So when we look at our Protestant friends, they don't have a living prophet. So they do the best they can with the scriptures and they get a lot out of the scriptures that some of us don't get. Because uh-huh. that's basically all they have. That's not all they have, but they don't have the same. They don't have temples or the heavens being open or a living prophet or all these other things that they that some of us in the church can use kind of as a crutch or as a shortcut. I was going to say that's exactly what the what these people did here. Instead of going to their scriptures and getting everything they could out of that gift, which is what they should have done. They just went and asked Jesus, which, well, yeah, I'm glad you could ask Jesus. <laughs> that was but if great. they had maximized the gifts they already had, they wouldn't have needed to, to ask. And I think that speaks to your point. Absolutely. Which I also find interesting, considering the verses we just read last week in uh, the book of Third Nephi, considering that there are words that we don't have today because Jesus wanted to prove mm-hmm. us. He wanted to say, okay, I realize I just gave you guys a lot of stuff, but there's some of this 
there's some of this I don't want you to write down because I want to prove my people to see if they will hearken unto the commandments which I have given them already, those things that I'm telling you to write down. So it's very interesting to me that Jesus goes from saying to the Nephites just a couple chapters ago, don't write all this stuff down mm-hmm. to, oh, y'all want to know what the name of the church is? Sure, I'll tell you. Just, yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I feel like I'm making it a little too simplistic or there's more nuance to this that I'm not fully appreciating. But I'm able, but I definitely see the merit of a, uh, you know, both points, the fact that we can be so bold as to come to Christ with questions like this, but also the necessity of maximizing the gifts that we have been given, um, whether it be the scriptures or the living mm-hmm, prophets. Mm-hmm. And to that point, I, I do want to talk about how people do tend to use the prophet as a crutch, especially when it comes to the dispossessions of certain populations of people. I know that pe- I know there's people that have used verses actually in 3 Nephi 28 or other places to justify the current state of affairs. I've heard 28 verse 34. This is this says, "Woe be unto him that will not hearken unto the words of Jesus, and also to them whom he hath chosen and sent among them. For whoso receiveth not the words of Jesus and the words of those whom he hath sent, receiveth not him, and therefore he will not receive them at the last day." I've heard a verse like this used. I've heard this verse used to condemn people like us, Derek, because of mm-hmm. our. Mm-hmm you know, criticism of the way things might be presently. But also, if we are going to use this verse to do that, then we also got to use this verse to condemn Peter. We got to condemn Paul. We got to condemn Nephi. We got to condemn all these other folks who straight up did something contrary to what the Lord's anointed was doing or straight up did or just went their own path or whatever. So I I don't know if you got something immediately you want to say to that, but I do feel like we are very prone to things like, proof texting or things like uh, leaning on the words of our imperfect prophets in order to justify our apathy or even our hatred or our ignorance of uh, the plight of whole populations of people. Yeah, and I think a lot of people look at the proof texting situation and just think it's really about, well, what does the text say? But a big piece of this is... Where does the privilege lie and whose life has to really change depending on the usage of this proof text? For example, someone could come and say, well, you know, a man should not lie with a man. And the person quoting that, their life doesn't have to change based on their application of that use of the text. And so they can just say whatever they want. They have the luxury to quote it one way or the other, and their life won't ever change. So it costs them nothing to do something that will end up costing someone else a lot. Right. And because they don't bear that cost, they feel like they can just quote these verses whenever they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be named about where people benefit from and not just like arguing over the interpretation of this or that verse. Because right. once you've done that, you've already lost the game. Yes, sir. And speaking of losing games, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what you just brought up in terms of obedience to church leaders and hearkening unto the words of God's servants when we talk about contention and in 4th Nephi. I'm going to bring in a sports analogy, so stay oh, tuned for that. Derek with a sports Derek analogy. Derek with a sports analogy. Okay, interesting. I am excited. I didn't know Derek was a sports guy. Anyway, is there anything else? I think the only other thing I wanted to bring out in 3 Nephi 27 briefly is uh, this is a scripture mastery for those of you who went to seminary where uh, the Lord talks about 
the gospel, where he gives us his gospel. Now, we talked briefly a couple weeks ago when the Savior first appeared, or, when, or just before the Savior appeared, that uh, he was going to be bringing his gospel. And he talks about what that gospel is. Faith, repentance, faith unto repentance, baptism, and enduring to the end is added on here in the 3rd Nephi 27 text. Uh, basically, the Lord is reaffirming what he has introduced himself with, which is his gospel, which is yeah. built upon his atoning sacrifice. So that is just one thing that I wanted to lift up, is just the bookending of Christ's ministry among the Nephites with a, reiter- with a reiteration of what his gospel is, and that we should not add or take away from it. Yeah, I want to add something here from verse 16 of chapter 27. It says, And it shall come to pass that whoso repenteth and is baptized in my name shall be filled. And if he endureth to the end, behold, him I will hold guiltless before my father at that day when I shall stand to judge the world. I want to focus on this filled business here because it says there's only two requirements before you get filled. It's one is you repent and two is you baptize and whoever does those two will be filled. And I think a lot of us culturally want to add a whole bunch of other stuff to say, well, you're not truly filled until you're sealed or until you graduate from BYU or until you go on a mission or all these other things. And that, it makes it out to be that, well, then single people aren't filled or LGBT people don't have the right to be filled. But it says here, anyone who repents and is baptized in Christ's name will be filled. And there's a fullness that should be accessible to all of us who are members of the church that culturally we deny and exclude people from. And I want to get into this issue of resilience because let's go back to verse 11 because it talks about people not built on the gospel and it says they have joy in their works for a season and by and by the end cometh, and they are hewn down and cast into the fire. So they have a joy, but it doesn't last. They're not resilient. And that reminds me of something that Martin Luther taught. So Martin Luther, the uh, most people probably know Luther, the, the, the reformer and theologian. And he said, and this is the Latin is, Oratio ten, meditatio tentatio faciunt theologum. And in English, that's prayer study and testing make a theologian and i find that so beautiful because it begins with prayer like a some of my first instinct is to begin with like well let's just study the word and then see what happens with that but i think the spirit that you bring with it and into it really makes you a theologian and then what comes out of that is the temptation or testing or trial because you end up facing life and it's within that crucible of holding the word in one hand and dealing with the world in the other that you end up navigating and processing and coming out with great theology based on whatever awful thing you had to go through. And I think that's really the key to resilience and faith is to have something that's been proven, something that's been tested. Like if you tell me, Derek, go out and run a marathon, like, I'll start, but I'll give up. It's only people who have pushed themselves against the resistance that end up having the endurance to endure to the end. Unfortunately, James can't endure to the end of one of my jokes. I cannot. Those things, <laughs> things are terrible. 
Um, I do want to come back to this idea in verse 10 and 11 once we get to 4th Nephi because I feel like a lot of what we are going to learn in 4th Nephi is really going to validate and uh, witness to what is being written here in uh, 10 and 11. Let me see if there's anything else. Nope. Talked about the gospel. Talked about the books. I think I'm done with 3rd Nephi 27. Is there anything in uh, 28 you want to go on to? Yeah, I want to talk about a number of things in, in 28. All right. Because here you have Jesus talking to the 12, and then he says to all all 12 of them in 28 verse 1, what is it that you desire of me after that I'm gone to the Father? And then nine of them say, well, we want to die and then be ushered into your presence. And then... Three of them said, well, they didn't, they didn't say anything. They were afraid at first. But Jesus says to them, what will ye that I should do unto you when I am gone unto the Father? And then they didn't dare to speak. And I think a lot of us, especially those of us on the margins of the church, we're afraid to ask stuff. <laughs> but then Jesus is telling us here that he's more willing to grant what we, have, what are, we need than we are to ask for it. And let's look at this because Jesus treated the nine and the three differently based on their own articulated self-understanding of what they needed. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all plan. Like he didn't say, well, you're all going to do this. He says, well, what is it that you want me to do? And nine of them wanted one thing and three of them wanted something else. And he granted both of their requests. Both of those requests were noble and sacred and holy. And they were different. A lot of us in the church think that there's only one plan of salvation and everyone has this one size fits all that's you don't there's none of that in our sources this one size fits all anything it's all about the one and jesus ministering to the one and all of us are ones right so we're all individuals but jesus meets all of us where we are and i find that profoundly helpful to build resilience in marginalized populations you know, just to say, look, we're not all going to be the same, and God doesn't even have the same plan for all of us. That's super liberating. I did not think to look at these verses about the three, about the twelve disciples, like this. Simply because, I mean, this is a story I hear all the time, and of course, the rumors and legends about the remaining three Nephites, yada yada. But I, this is super beautiful, just how. You pointed out that the Savior granted unto the disciples according to their desires. And all of them were valid. All of them were holy. Yeah, and yep. all of them were things that the Savior was cool with. Yeah, and this speaks to, like, I have no idea what their family situation was like. We we don't have any record that their wives got magically preserved with the, the three disciples, right? They we don't even, maybe they were single and maybe the nine had wives and they they were like we don't want to live on for thousands of years without our wife we want to die and be with her you know so maybe these three were single and they're like we don't have any other family other than each other so we don't need to uh, die to be with someone else we can just be the three of us chilling here for thousands of years and that gets back to something sister craig said in her marvelous talk this past general conference about seeing people where they are and seeing people for who they are and seeing people not with our own filter of, of preconceptions, but seeing them as Christ sees them. And this is a glorious example here of Christ seeing people where they are 
he saw them so well that he even knew what they wanted before they said it. And that's kind of what we should do is anticipate people's needs and take some initiative and not just wait for us to be educated. And I love what it says in verse 10 of this chapter. And for this cause, that is the cause of bringing souls, for this cause ye shall have fullness of joy, and ye shall sit down in the kingdom of my Father. Yea, and your joy shall be full, even as the Father hath given me of fullness of joy. This is what he says to the three disciples. Now, I call them the three disciples and not the three Nephites because we don't know that they were Nephites. They could have been Lamanites. We don't want to erase different ethnicities and center the Nephites because at this time, we've got now everyone on board. And they could have been Lamanites. They could have been any ethnicity. And so that's, we always hear them called the three Nephites. But that is, um, there's a little bit of a sleight of hand there. You know what I'm saying? A sleight of hand simply because at this point in the narrative, we're starting to get to where everybody who's righteous is simply called Nephites. And the quote unquote tribal identifiers aren't necessarily but that but that centers Nephite supremacy. No, I hear that. Yeah. Like that's and what I'm saying is that ethnically speaking, if we're talking about the ethnicity of these people, what they were who they were descended from, mm. we don't really know that anymore because now right, right. we are centering people who are righteous and people who are believers in Christ as Nephites and people who are not as Lamanites. Mm-hmm. And we are going to see that again in fourth Nephi when these yeah. class distinctions are brought up again. And I guess my point is the text never says, never calls them the three Nephites. It just says the three disciples. I want to talk about the three disciples in verse 19. It says, and they were cast into prison by them who did not belong to the church. And the prisons could not hold them, for they were rent in twain. What does this say about who is being imprisoned and who is doing the imprisoning? And we should look at this in the context of the modern prison abolition movement. Like, it's not in the nature of people to be captive, either enslaved or imprisoned. I don't think that's the ideal. And here, this pr- prison is not a solution. A, could not hold them. B, it was the prisons who were orchestrated by those with power. And C, it was orchestrated by people who were not righteous. And I think there's just something to be said there. I haven't fully fleshed out all of how that works. But I think justice in terms of the prisons is something that we should be thinking about. So I do have something for 29 simply because my eyes focus on anything, any place where a woe is written. Because I want to be the oh, who's getting condemned? Who's getting chewed <laughs> out? Like, what's happening here? I'm here for all the tea. And... um I wanted to hear what was uh, being said here and why this condemnation was being given. And in verse 5, that's where these things start, where woes are being pronounced upon, well, I'll I'll just read it here. Woe unto him that spurneth the doings of the Lord. Woe unto him that shall deny Christ and his works. Woe unto him that shall deny the revelations of the Lord, and that shall say the Lord no longer worketh by revelation or by prophecy or by gifts or by tongues or by healings or by the power of the Holy Ghost. Woe unto him that shall say at that day to get gain that there can be no miracle wrought by Jesus Christ. And, uh, You know, we've talked about this on the show before, but I do think it's worth mentioning again 
that we have a lot of this even within our own church, where people are saying things can't change, policies can't change, we can't experience miracles, or we like to tell people what God can mm-hmm, and cannot mm-hmm. do. Yeah. You said on this show before that your God does impossible things. And that hit me super hard because how often, I mean, I think it was just last week or the week before where you talked about how, remember when Moses was at the Red Sea with mm-hmm. the children of Israel mm-hmm. and then <laughs> there, there really didn't seem to be a way forward, but what did God do? What did Moses do? Impossible things. Literally parted a whole ocean and walked across it. Like to suppose that God can't do, if God can do that, we're really going to pretend that he can't make more plain Mm -hmm. or make some Mm -hmm. kind of place Mm -hmm. for LGBTQ saints in, in, uh, you know, in the plan of salvation. We're going to pretend that there's not a way to talk about social justice or to talk about anti-racism in the context of our church. We're going to pretend that there isn't a way where we can minister to the immigrant, to the impoverished, to the disabled, to the, like, we we love to tell people, particularly those on the margins, what God will and won't do for them. Mm. And I feel like that is one of our greatest sins. I feel like that's one, I mean, that is a huge woe that is being pronounced here. Woe. To be woe unto him that spurneth the word of the Lord. Woe be unto him that denies the miracles. Woe be unto him that say the Lord doesn't work by revelation. Look at how many people on the margins are working by revelation right now who are receiving the word of the Lord for themselves that allows them to stay here, that allows them to have a ministry here, that allows them to have a safe worship experience here. I think some of the people that the Lord is pronouncing woes on here are the people in the church who are trying to tell people, especially on the margins, what the Lord will and will not do for them. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because there's a difference between people who say the church shouldn't change and the people who say the church can't change. Uh-huh. And those are two different kinds of people. There's the, I think the people who, th- who think the church shouldn't change, like around LGBTs or women. Mm-hmm. That is solved in one way, but the people who think the church can't change, they're running afoul of this woe because they're right. saying there cannot be a miracle that will blast open our limited understanding with new light. They're saying that's not possible. Right. They are saying back like in in uh, earlier in the Book of Mormons where it says we – I, I, in Second Nephi somewhere, like, a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. It's the same thing with the proclamation on the family. Yes, sir. You've got the same people saying, a proclamation, a proclamation, There, we have a proclamation, and there cannot be another proclamation. Mm-hmm. Well, of course there can. Yep. And the problem is that, now that first group that says they shouldn't change, well, maybe they can change, the church can change, but they shouldn't. What they're doing is they're stuffing their ears with the proclamation so they cannot hear the anguished cries of their neighbor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's exactly the opposite of Christ, what Christ did. Yes, sir. And that's why I love the reinforcement that this is Christ's church in his name. It's not in the name of any of these limited, fallible, fallen, mortal beings. Yes, sir. And I love how... Third Nephi ends um, the end of verse two of chapter thirty, that ye may receive a remission of your sins and be filled with the Holy Ghost. There's this filling again that ye may be numbered with my people. 
who are of the house of Israel. So it ends with filling and inclusion. And I want to speak this into the hearts of LGBT folks who may not feel, who may feel empty and excluded. There is a promise of filling and inclusion here, being numbered. And all that's a prerequisite to that is turn and repent and come to Jesus and be baptized. Mm -hmm. That we can do and we mm -hmm. can endure to the end. All of these other things are really part of the, all of the other things around family and marriage and arrangements. All of that, it depends on your, on your individual journey. And like we said, Jesus is responsive to these individual journeys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, and I'm, again, I'm really glad that you're bringing out Christ's responsiveness because we've seen that in two big ways just in these short, mm -hmm. few short uh, chapters in the third Nephi. We saw this again with his conversation with the three, with the, well, all 12 Nephi disciples. Disciple, yeah. All 12 disciples. And we saw it when all the people were praying in unity for Jesus to tell them what the name of the church mm -hmm. was. Jesus Christ's responsiveness should embolden us to take it more advantage of the gift of Christ that we have in our lives. And as you pointed out already, Christ is more willing to respond to us than it seems a lot of us are willing to ask. And yeah. uh, we need to, we need to, I, I feel like a lot of us know that, mm -hmm. but don't really believe it, if and that I, makes any sense. Maybe I can talk about this more another time, but I just want to briefly mention the whole Let God Prevail talk by President Nelson. There's another half of that in which Jacob actually prevailed over God. Interesting. And said, I'm going, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And mm -hmm. that's the faith of us on the margins is like, we actually have to strive for what it is that we need and say, mm -hmm. look, I'm not going to let this church go until it blesses us. This is the other name of, this is the other yes. translation of Israel. Israel. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's, uh, and just one example, another example of this, I don't want to talk about this too much. But people might not have heard me say this in a long time. It's the brother of Jared in in Ether when he when the brother of Jared gets a plan from the Lord for the barges and and then the brother of Jared says, "Look, this does not work for my people." And he sends that plan back and gets it fixed. He says, "There's no light and no air. God, you gotta fix this plan." And Get it back to me because this is not workable. And the Lord does. The Lord comes that's up with... That's a collaborative effort too. Yeah. The Lord comes up with this idea of saying, well, um, you can't have windows, so I'm going to give... You should do this little stopper thing. And then the next piece of it was, well, what do you think I should do about the light? And then I'm sure any number of solutions could have worked, but the Lord went with the one that the brother of Jared picked. And I'm like, that is the God that I know and love, the God who created me and sustains me and has not forgotten about me, sent me to this earth knowingly. Like, God isn't stupid enough to send a gay person to this world and not have a plan, right? Talk about preparedness. Also something that's moderately humorous about that whole situation to me is just how uncreative the brother of Jared's solution was. Be like, I got some rocks. Like you want to touch them and light them up. And it's just like the Lord is willing to work with us with whatever our solutions mm -hmm. might be. It's not that I, I feel like a lot of people just do not fully comprehend how much the Lord is willing to work with what he has already given us in terms of yeah. our creative faculties, mm -hmm. in terms of what our abilities are or whatever else. Just the Lord is willing to meet us where we are, even if it's something as, I don't know. Yeah. In non-innovative as bringing a bunch of rocks for God to touch. 
Well, I think the, that was one of the few options that he probably thought of because he couldn't have fire because you're right. in an enclosed space. There's no possibility of fire. There's, There's no, no possibility, possibility of, of windows. Yeah. Because, um, you know, water will get in and or and so that it was tight like unto a dish, kind of like you and I are tight like unto a dish. <laughs> We're Goodness. the bestest friends ever. <laughs> Shut up, Derek. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that came from the world of the brother brother of Jared's experience right because he knew how to melt rocks and make little glass thingies and that was the first thing he thought of as oh mm-hmm. I can use this as a source of light that's not hot that won't burn down the thing that won't take up all the oxygen and that actually is the best idea that he could think of and let God touch it and watch it work so yeah let's dive into fourth Nephi you ready for that uh, yeah, I guess I'm ready for that. Said just about everything else I need to say in 4th Nephi. So, yeah, man, 4th Nephi. We have in these verses our Book of Mormon Zion Society. And I wasn't entirely sure what piece I wanted to focus on. There's a lot going on in here. I, I definitely want to focus... Oh, I want to talk about the principles of a Zion society a little bit, but I, I wanted to be as open as I could to potentially receive something different as I don't think I've read the chapter of 4th Nephi with with this lens that I'm currently using. And the first thing I felt hard as I was reading these verses was that the focus of all social progress, all social progress and everything else that is good in this book was centered on Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that was the first thing that hit me hard. Fourth Nephi basically starts off by letting us know that conversion unto the Lord was the beginning of the establishment of Zion among these people. This is verse 2. The people were all converted unto the Lord, both Nephites and Lamanites, and there were no contentions and disputations among them, and every man did deal justly one with another. I'll go on to verse 3, too. And they had all things in common among them. Therefore, there weren't rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. Straight away, we're not but three verses into this Mm -hmm. whole thing, and the author lets us know that a natural byproduct of conversion to Jesus Christ was two things at least, economic justice Mm -hmm. and unity. Mm -hmm. Now look at this piece. We get into more detail. Um, The first thing that I thought of when I read this economic justice piece was actually something we hear in the DNC. And this actually kind of made me excited to to study the DNC next year because I kind of underestimated just how much content is relevant in the DNC. Um, But I'll just go ahead and read the verse. This is 105. Uh, I'll start in verse 3. But behold, my people have not learned to be obedient to the things which I required at their hands, but are full of all manner of evil, and do not impart of their substance, as becometh saints, to the poor and afflicted among them, and are not united according to the union required Mm -hmm. by the law of the celestial kingdom. And Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law and of the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, I cannot receive her unto myself. I think I read to verse 5 right there. But there's a few things apparent from this passage. Yeah. And But the one I want to focus on is that Zion society requires economic unity, economic justice, mm-hmm. and also material equality among all of its citizens. Elsewhere, the Lord also said, if ye are not one, 
ye are not mine. That if you are not equal in earthly things, ye cannot be equal in obtaining heavenly things. So economic justice is a big part of a Zion society, and it was a big part of 4th Nephi. We'll see hints of that later on. Uh, the second principle I noted was unity. Three or four times in this single chapter in the Book of Mormon, it's mentioned that there are no contentions among the people. We'll also read uh, the words in the Doctrine and Covenants that if the Lord's people are not, in fact, the Lord's, they are not united. Again, if you are not one, mm. you are not mine. There were no divisive elements in the fourth Nephi society. There was no poverty, no selfishness, no social Darwinism. You know, none of that survival of the fittest nonsense. There's evidence that when those things aren't at work, that crime is eliminated, among other things, yeah. and thriving societies can be built and rebuilt. When crime, when poverty was eliminated in some cities, urban renewal was able to take place, like, and was able to be sustained, which is not insignificant. And after telling us about the economic justice and unity of the people, we learn in verse 7 that the Lord did prosper them exceedingly in the land, yea, insomuch that they did build cities again where there had been cities burned. That's the urban renewal mm, I was talking about. Yeah. Yea, even that great city Zarahemla did they cause to be built again. And there were no envyings, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, nor murders, nor any manner of lasciviousness. And there could not and surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. No robbers, no murderers, neither were there Lamanites, nor any manner of ites, but they were in one, the children of Christ, and heirs to the kingdom of God. Now, I noticed a couple of things in that last verse. That was 16 and 17 I just read. Uh, one is that adherence to the gospel of Christ brings significant and lasting change and reconstruction. And another that may be worth mentioning is that the social constructs of Nephites and Lamanites were rendered moot by the exactly, progress yeah. of this people. 600 years of being called Nephites and Lamanites and almost 40 years, then almost 40 years into the post-Christ appearance and the post-Christ society of the Nephites and Lamanites, those differences just go away. We, we've been this American institution, some like race as a construct has existed for I don't know how many hundreds of years, but like it's relatively new, you know, about four or five, six hundred years that race has been like a thing here. I can't imagine us getting to such a point where the construct of race just vanishes because we're all so converted to the Lord. But this passage kind of gave me hope in that when a whole people is, in converted, is converted unto the Lord, perhaps they actually can move into a post-racial mm, society. Mm. And those words kind of taste bad coming Ew, out of my mouth, yeah, I know you know, saying post-racial society. But that seems to be kind of what these people have advanced to. They have become so equal and so committed to the principles of Jesus Christ, so committed to the principles of an economic justice, of unity, of a Zion society, that these class distinctions don't exist and they don't see fit to even use those names anymore. That's mm. pretty powerful to me. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that immediately? I have some thoughts about that. So part of the thing is I don't I don't think that it fully homogenized all the diversity and difference away. Right. I don't think it erased their identities. What That's it still did existed. is you had the beauty of identities that were different that lived in harmony and without injustice. See, Unity. that's the thing. Unity through diversity, like yeah. Quentin Cook said. And so I just want to name some some things that I noticed here. Like you said, I love verse 3. And for the, anyone who missed it, it's beautiful. It is anti-capitalist. Uh, 
anti-slavery, anti-imprisonment, because that's how I interpret the bond and free. There were no bond and free, but they were all made free. Right. I think that applies both to enslavement and also prisons. And it says that they, in verse do, 2, did deal justly with one another. Like you mm -hmm. said, true conversion leads to social justice. Like, I don't know how Isn't anyone interesting? can be a member of this church uh -huh. and believe the Book of say Mormon. It, say it. And shove the Book of Mormon in mm -hmm. millions of people's faces mm -hmm. and then not be on board with this. Bro. Right? Bro. It blows my mind. Yeah. Like, how do we have this text? How do we have all this stuff? And we have so many people still saying all lives matter. So many people still hating poor people. So many people mm. still oppressing women. Like, how does this still exist? I'm sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. And I just want to name something really interesting about the... Um, now, like, I don't know how... Like, I think... I think there's this idea of like you, Jesus shows up, magically everyone converts, and now it's all peaceful. And I think Mormon is skipping some pieces. Yeah. He's skipping the work that they had to, to do. Yes. Are you about to talk about Sister Eubank? Yes. Okay. You go first. Okay. I was just going to quote Sister Eubank real quick. I really liked her talk for the most part from a, the women's session at conference, but she said this quote that I really liked. She said, Unity doesn't magically happen. It takes work. It's messy. Sometimes it's uncomfortable and it happens gradually when we clear away the bad as fast as the good can grow. We are never alone in our efforts to create unity. But I just like that she talked about the messiness of that work. I don't know, like this certainly didn't happen overnight for the Nephites. Like Christ didn't just appear and magically everybody mm -hmm. converted. Like we talked about this yesterday, uh, last week when, um, you know, even when Christ had been among the people for a season, the disciples still had to be reminded to include Samuel's words in their record. Yeah. So they clearly weren't perfect. They clearly had work to do still. But uh, that speaks to the point, and uh, Sister Eubank speaks to the point that uh, this was work for the people. Yeah, and I think the, the, the conversion of the people to Christ wasn't some magical thing. What I think it allowed them to do is then they had a common ground upon which to do the work. And then uh -huh. they still had to do the work. Right. That's what I imagine happened here is now that they were united in Christ, they could actually listen to each other and figure out what's going on and have the heart of Christ for one another and then do the work. It wasn't just like a magic Big quick time. fix apart from people's agency and choices. If I may, Derek, yeah. I just want to speak to that point a little bit. I find it so interesting that when I was on my mission, because of our unity of faith that me and my companions had, we were able to do so much good together, and I could genuinely say that I loved most of those dudes. And then we came home, and then I learned about their political positions. And there are some people that I don't talk to anymore uh -oh. because at least, at least two of them were just, well, are straight-up racist. Like, were they racist with you on the mission? I mean, they definitely were racist then, but they weren't racist towards me, or at least in a way that was destructive to the work that we were doing as a companionship. Uh -huh. For example, I got the my first racist companion, I got the impression that he was racist fairly early on into our companionship, but I also saw his commitment to the work, and we were able to talk through some of his actual racist behaviors towards me. For example, treating me like I was dumb. Like, that was something that I had to deal with 
a couple of my senior companions. They treated me like I wasn't as capable. Only my white senior companions, by the way, did this. But after one companionship inventory, mm-hmm. we were able to nip that in the bud, and that was never an issue. Yeah, again. yeah. So like, I mean, they're the dumb ones. They are the dumb ones. <laughs> like, right now, they're the dumb ones. Um, <laughs> but point being is that I was able to get along with these guys because there was no time for all that other stuff. Our minds were single mm, to the glory of yeah. God. Therefore, I was able to have meaningful relationships and friendships with these guys that allowed us to do our work with full purpose of heart. Without that element, though, those are just two dudes I don't talk to anymore. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that, and that speaks to the work that needs to be done. Um, and, and they didn't do the work. Didn't do the work. Um, I love the line in Come Come Ye Saints that says, no toil nor labor fear. There's a lot of saints that <laughs> that are afraid of toil and work. Mm. Like They're like, oh, we can't do this anti-racism work because that's too much work. Or Like, no, we're not supposed to fear any labor or right. any toil or right. any work. Right. You know, it's tough, but those pioneers did it and we can do it too. Mm-hmm. We should not be afraid of doing the hard work. Speaking mm-hmm. of the hard work, I want to talk about that cougar video. <laughs> okay. So probably, I think 45 million people have seen this video. So a lot of our listeners may have seen it or heard of it. There was a hiker or jogger going through some trails in Utah. Yeah, somewhere near Provo. And came across some baby kittens. And then came across the mama cougar who was protecting those kittens. And that was a very scary video. Six minutes of absolute horror if you put yourself in the frame. Because this was like a first-person view of, like, he's holding up the ca- his phone and recording this cougar charging at him. <laughs> it was so funny. I'm still scared about this. I'm sorry, bro. Like, I just... <laughs> Videos like this are reasons why I don't hike, and also just the fact that this dude was like screaming "shoo" and all these expletives at the cougar as if the cougar could, could understand. understand it. Well, I'm just like, <laughs> well, it worked. It worked. No, it didn't. That cougar stalked him for six whole. But minutes. I mean, it worked him well enough that he didn't get injured. But <laughs> He's anyway, like yelling at this cat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's, so, that's white people stuff. That is the whitest thing I've seen this week. You won't find no black people creating a video like that. Well, I don't think he... I think he started the video in order to take a picture of the kittens. I don't think he said, well, I'm going to get I'm gonna get killed by this cougar. Let me just flip out my, <laughs> my Instagram so everyone mm-hmm. can see it. I don't think that's what he was doing. Mm-hmm. But let me get back to something. The first time I watched that video, I was so scared. Even though I knew it ended up okay... It was just so awful seeing being face-to-face with this cougar. But then I thought to myself, what if instead of putting myself in the position of that hiker, I put myself in the position of those cubs? How would I feel then? I would feel the exact opposite of afraid. I would feel safe, protected, content, that I have a great defender who will do all this really wild stuff. Like, it was, that cougar was wild and, like, and I thought to myself, that's what I think LGBTQ folks in the church are longing for. We want allies to get between us and the hiker and make a mess, make some noise, be unpredictable. And I would love, if there's a church leader that says something homophobic, I would love a straight ally 
to get in that church leader's face just like that cougar for six minutes or however long it takes to get that church leader to back down. Whatever it takes, as long as it's nonviolent. Get in that church leader's face. Make, a, make some noise. Make him back down. Do not let him get away. Make him scared to say something like that ever again or do something like that ever again. That's what I want to see. And I think that's the work that needs to be done in the church. We need to have people willing to do that work and willing to, to stand up on behalf, like Christ did, to stand up on behalf of those who do not have the same access to power and privilege. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And let's let's talk a little bit about contingent here because I, there's a lot of statements here about that there were no contentions and disputations mm-hmm. At the beginning of the chapter, then in verse 13, and then in verse 15. And I want to name something because this little contention piece can be used in a manipulative manner by people who don't know the power of the scriptures. Ah, Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. People will say, why are you complaining? Contention is bad. But what they miss, they totally miss something interesting about this text Let's look at verse 15 and 16, which you already quoted. It says, And it came to pass that there was no contention in the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. And then it continues to describe that love. It says, And there were no envyings, nor strifes, nor tumults, nor whoredoms, nor lyings, murders. Um, And then in verse 17, there's no robbers and no murders. So here's the thing. Contention is not a problem it's really a symptom of a problem. Mm-hmm. Contention is not the problem. It is the just the act of addressing a problem. Mm. So we have to keep this in mind. The reason that they didn't have any contention isn't because there was all this injustice and they just pretended they it wasn't it. there. Right. It is they dealt with the injustice first. And then as a natural outgrowth of that, there was no tension. Mm. Because where there's no problem, there's no contention. So the right. contention's not the problem. I think this is people's problem with Kaepernick is they look at the contention or what they call contention and think that's the problem. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, a, like I said, here in this society, it wasn't a fact that there was a whole bunch of injustice and they just, you know, squelched it and that's how there was no contention. The reason there was no contention is because there's no reason to have contention. Mm. And the achievement here isn't the is that that they um, avoided all of those things that gave rise to contention. All of those injustices, the robbery, the murder, the strife, the tumult, the lying, the all these other things. And that needs to be named. That needs to be named about how we look at, at the... Uh, and I'm reminded, of course, every white person's favorite black person is yeah. Dr. King. And what he said about a negative piece that's the absence of tension versus a positive piece, which is the presence of justice. I Mm -hmm. think that's speaking to this white here because he could have been called contentious Mm -hmm. or he was, he was was called contentious, contentious, right? But, um, you know, and people would say people then will look at the outcry and focus more attention on that than on the pain that gave rise to that. And that people should never forget that that's ex- that's the opposite of what is taught here. You you solve the problem first, and then as a result, there's no contention, mm-hmm. and that gets used for people who are harmed or abused in the church. People will 
when we cry out for justice, they say, oh, you're being contentious. Let's talk about that for a second. We're being contentious. You are being a problem. (laughs) Wouldn't be no contention if you weren't being a problem. And this folds into what you said earlier about hearkening under the words of the Lord's servants. And I want to bring an analogy from sports here. Because one of the blessings we have in the church is divine authority vested into particular callings. I am 100% on board with having authorities in the church who can serve to you know, navigate these disputes. Because without a living prophet, without a living apostle, all we've got is every person's own interpretation of the scripture, right? And that's the Protestant world for you. And why you have a whole bunch of... Um, and there's some blessings to having a diversity in the Protestant world. Don't Don't get that wrong. But when it comes down to like making a judgment call on like where we're going to go with this and what doctrine is true and how do we, without a living authority, we can't we can't solve that, right? And we can't just say, well, Jesus is the head because Jesus works through us and among us and everyone's going to claim they know how to best interpret what Jesus said. So there's got to be on the ground someone who has the keys to make these judgment calls. I'm going to liken this to an umpire or a referee in a sports game because if you get a bunch of kids together with no um no umpire no referee and you just say give them here's a soccer ball and there's going to be a fight within in within five minutes and if it's hockey it's going to be a fight within one minute and that's just the nature of it because people will dispute oh like you fouled me in xyz but with an umpire there who can actually say nope i saw this i'm going to call this and then the game can continue. And I think that's the real benefit of having authorities in the church is so that the game can continue. And but there's a there's a there's a corollary to that. Not only can you under referee a game, you can also over referee it. Because if you're blowing the whistle every 10 seconds, if you are making all these calls, if you are interrupting all the time, no one's going to play the game there either. And so we have to n- navigate in between this this pretty narrow tightrope between over-refereeing and under-refereeing. I think a lot of the culture of the church wants the authorities in the church to over-referee. And I think that will cause a problem. Because then what happens is the players aren't even the focus anymore. You know, Have you ever gone to a sporting event just to watch the referee? No, we were, we're there to watch the game. No one wants to hang posters of this amazing ref on the wall. We want to hang like Derek Jeter and Kobe on the wall. We want to have Michael Jordan on the wall. We don't want to have this dude like looking like he works at Foot Locker. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we've done with the general authorities. We've made them into the stars. I'm like, they're not the stars. The stars are the the local people in your ward who do the work of church and actually make a difference on the local level. Like That's who's blessed my life the most is the local people. Those are the saints. That's why we're the, we call ourselves the saints. And not not the team that's in New Orleans. But we're the, we're the real saints, all of us. And I think that speaks to navigating some of the, the challenges we have with authority in the church. Like, I agree. Yes, these are authorities that who have divine authority. But like referees in a... In a basketball game, they are not infallible. They're going to make wrong calls. They're not going to see things except from their perspective. 
And when they make those judgment calls, I'm not going to just, you know, throw the ball away and, and go home. I'm going to still play the game and say, ref, next time you better make a better call because I'm still in this game. And they're going to learn from that. And they're human, and they're going to make some bad judgment calls. They're going to make some awful calls, right? But I'm still in the game, and no one has the power to throw me out of the game. I'm still here. And so that, I think, solves a lot of the problems that we have because, with our cultural view of authority in the church because it's they make it all... And, of course, the ref isn't supposed to come, come and join in and play the game for us. Right. That's the other thing about over-refereeing is that... Yeah. You know, if they do, if they have to do all the work, we start depending on them to control the flow of the game to the point right. where the athletes don't even play or yeah. they don't even, you know, train to play the game properly. It undermines the mm-hmm. very concept of freedom of thought right. and action. It, it undermines agency. Yeah, it does. And it, it, it really changes the flow of the game. And I think that's the whole point of these refs is to step in only when they need to. Mm-hmm and trust the process and otherwise and and realize let the flow of the game be healthy and set up an arrangement so that if one person is fouling the the other you don't have some retaliation but you have an authority to come in and state nope this is what we're going to do and this is the consequence i think that's really where a good authority is is to to level that playing field and make sure that there's justice and fairness mm. and i think we've got this cultural problem of actually the reverse of depending on the authorities to harm those who are on the margins, right? They're like, mm-hmm. we want we want our authorities to to damage the people that we don't like and to put them in their place. I'm like, no, that's and I think that speaks to this issue of contention and what we should do about contention. And I I agree that there should be some measure of order in the church because otherwise, without any order, you have lots of injustice because there's no consequences for bad behavior and for abuse and for discrimination like there needs to be some level of supervision but we also don't want to micromanage and over referee like i said so that's kind of my approach to using this sports to analyze the issue of contention and what to do when people call us contentious and falsely claim that our contention is is the real problem so that's kind of most, I think that's most of what I had to say about um, fourth Nephi, other than I just want to name that when it all goes bad, let's look at verse 25 and 26. Capitalism crept in. It says, and from that time forth, they did have their goods and substances no more common among them. Capitalism crept in, and they began to di- be divided into classes. Mm-hmm. And they began to build up churches unto themselves to get gain like here is they didn't have classes right here now we've got the stratification again of of the society and i think that that's that speaks to the real problem is that i imagine a lot of those classes had this bootstrap idea of oh the poor people are they should just lift themselves up by their bootstraps. They weren't saying that back when they had all things in common. Mm-hmm. You know, the best example of socialism in the entire world is a local family. The parents do a lot of the work, especially when the kids are young. They're just consumers. Like, they they don't have any bootstraps. They're not self-reliant. Within a family that loves and cares about each other, you've got some people 
providing and some people consuming more than they contribute. And the reason it works is it, how it how, like what would you do to a father who said, "Well, my my three year old should be self reliant and pull herself up by her own bootstraps. I'm not going to feed her. She should go and work herself." No, we like the the people in the church talk about how the family is ordained of God. The family is God's socialism on a micro level, right? That literally is people pooling their resources. They're all in one. They don't have classes. Yes, some people are going to have more advantages and more privileges and more ability to work and produce. Others are going to have more needs than they can produce. Mm -hmm. But we're a family. And I think that's how the church should be, and that's how the human world should be. I don't want to hear any of this more of this bootstrap business. Telling the poor to pull themselves up by their bootstraps ignores the structural reasons why we've got poverty in the first place, and it ignores the fact that when Jesus has his way with his people, there are no rich and poor. There are no classes. There's no need for any bootstrapping. Also, there's probably no need for police in this society because, look, if, they've, if they're truly converted, they have all things in common. There's no rich and poor, which means there's no robbery. If there's everyone, no, no murders, no lyings, no if there, There's no reason to take someone else's possessions if you have all your needs met. So I don't think there's any police in the Zion society of 4th Nephi, right? There's no handcuffs. There's no bond or free, you know. This is radical. This is radical. And I I think people in the 19th century read the Book of Mormon much more as a social justice text than we do today. Probably. I want to do more research on that. I want to talk about one more thing. I, and I th- I, I'm probably going to say one more thing for like another five things. <laughs> but let's look at verse 39. And this is talking about the great division that has happened. And it wasn't just that they kind of like slipped out of belief, but they actively taught hate. So this isn't just like less active. It was, let's see, verse 39. And it was because of the wickedness and abomination of their fathers, even as it was in the beginning. And they were taught to hate the children of God even as the Lamanites were taught to hate the children of Nephi from the beginning. Notice that hate has to be taught. Hate has to be taught. We should never forget that. We don't. We shouldn't think of hate like earthquakes. It's just going to happen and we can't do anything about it. Hate is artificial. It has to be taught and it has to be supported with power. Like if we didn't, if all these isms didn't have power behind them, they would fall away really quickly. It's only because they mutate to survive and that there's power behind them and there's investment behind them that they end up being transferred to the next generation and people are taught to hate. And maybe if people are taught to hate, they can be taught to not to hate. Mm-hmm. They and, can learn it, yeah. they can unlearn it. So I've talked way too much. <laughs> it's all good. It was all great stuff, man. Um, I think the only thing I had left to say was something you've already brought up. I just wanted to add my witness to the idea that well, something that was already written in here, that contentions among the people, that there was no contentions among the people because they were all converted unto the Lord. And I'm glad you talked a little bit more about what that means. Um, I was only going to say that I believe the only 
we're only given a hint of what that means, but I also believe it's the only hint that we need. And we could kind of reverse engineer some solutions to our current social problems by simply reading what you read in verse 15, that there was no contention because of the love of God, which did dwell in the hearts of the people. I believe from there we can re- we can reverse engineer a solution to all of our social ills. Um, like if I had to, if I had to have been the one to write this down, I probably would have been more specific. And I'm glad that Mormon was when he wrote down mm-hmm. all the stuff that contributed to the Zion society that were that they were able to build. I hope that when we talk about other things like uh, uh, LGBTQ affirmation, um, you know, feminism as well as uh, anti-racism, we can also be a little bit more specific about what this conversion looks like, about what this love of Christ looks like. And hopefully use it in a mm-hmm. way that helps us build a Zion like society that we see here in Fourth Nephi. Yeah, and it goes back to Sister Eubanks' point about there being power, the power of God within a united people. Absolutely. Like there's stuff we could do that the world would be so impressed by, but we just don't have the integrity or endurance right now to do it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Integrity, probably, probably endurance too. Weak-willed, it's all it's all bad. It all needs work. Anyway, is there anything else in Fourth Nephi you wanted to put out there? No, other than I'm a little bit sad because we've got this great climax to the Book of Mormon, but the narrative art of the the narrative arc of the Book of Mormon is a tragedy. It begins with hope and promise. It it. it We've got some drama in the middle. We've got a high point with the approach of Christ in a Zion society, but then it ends in genocide, and it didn't have to be that way. Nah, it didn't. And like this whole Zion-like society that we had in 4th Nephi, it didn't take, I mean, it took a long time, but by the time we get to the end of this, like 40-some verses of, Mm -hmm. you know, record, it's one book, it's one chapter, and we go from a Zion society to a society that has given itself to pride and classism and, you know, and and lyings and Mm -hmm. secret combinations. Mm -hmm. Just, it's really unfortunate. And it's tough because... There's portions of the Book of Mormon that can be used in the service of racism, and there's portions of the Book of Mormon that can be used in the service of anti-racism. Uh-huh. And we have to, we have to be on the right side of that. Yeah, we can't just say, "Well, the text is there," and we, you know, whatever. We have to be skillful and thoughtful and careful in how we uh, interpret and apply the text. And I think that's exactly where we went wrong with LGBT people. We have not done the work of interpreting our sources correctly and applying them correctly and noting their impact. And that's, I think, where we got things like how how problematic our culture in the church has gotten around LGBTQ, LGBTQ folks. If there's uh, nothing else, then let's go ahead and uh, wrap up real quick before we do. Wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. 
The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also just want to remind you guys that our Glow page is still up. If you guys are interested in uh, posting a contribution in any form, go to glow.fm slash beyondtheblock that's G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyondtheblock. We'll put a link in our show notes as well. But uh, yeah, if you guys are able to contribute in any way, you get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook group where you can interact with us more directly, provide some feedback, any ideas you got for the show, uh, ideas you got for resources we could create in the future. You can also access our notes and a lot more. So if you don't got coins to throw at us, feel more than free to uh, share our page on your socials and you can still join our collaborator community. I uh, also want to give a special thanks to... Uh, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, Tamara Kemsley for editing our audio, and also Eden Wynn for uh, doing our social media. We've been a little silent on that for the last uh, week or so. Eden just had a baby, so we're kind of flailing about trying to manage our social media. So if you've been missing our posts, we apologize. We are trying to, I mean, we're, we're, we're not Eden, so sorry sorry about that, guys. We will We will improve upon our social media presence as best we can. Anything else, Derek? Nope, that's it for me. Till we meet again next week, family in Christ. Later, everyone. It's so good to be here every week.